from Luminary Media and Jigsaw Productions. This episode contains explicit language and graphic depictions of sexual assault. Communication. The words we say and how we say them. They give us a way to make ourselves understood. But our words also give us the tools to lie. Not only to other people, but to ourselves. I'm Alex Gibney, and this is Lies We Tell. useful. I'm happy to be interrupted. I'm a person who likes to be interrupted. So. Oh, good. I'm an interrupter. So this is all going to work out. <laughs> Science writer Dan Engber wrote something in a New York Times article which caught my eye. So I asked him to come down to our recording studio and talk with me and Alex. Dan, can you, can you give us an example of... Well, like romantic relationships. That's <laughs> where I feel like I've experienced this most acutely, where you have like a conversation with your partner and you're like, okay, I really think we understand understand each other. And then like it comes up again and you're like, whoa, (laughs) everything that I thought was said the last time we discussed this was just completely my imagination, just my projection of what I was hoping she was saying. Um, I mean, you try the best you can. But there's so much work that goes into listening and understanding. There's so much creative work that goes into it, um, even when you're trying as hard as you can to just be like a human tape recorder. We've all had that experience. But there are times, like this story Dan told us, about a woman named Janice Boynton and her student Betsy Wheaton, when misunderstandings can be life-altering. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is a complicated story, one that hinges on a technique called facilitated communication. And and just to just to be clear, like what is facilitated communication what what is it so it's uh a a, i mean the 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 noun is 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 uh controversial but it let's say it is a method for um eliciting communication from nonverbal people with disabilities and the key thing is a keyboard is that the idea it's a keyboard but it really can be uh or you uh, point to a picture or yeah, I think the core of it is the the facilitator is going to be sitting next to the client and holding him or her by the shoulder or the elbow or the hand and just attempting to steady the motion to enable this person to point. So, you know, most commonly point and, and pick out keys one by one on a keyboard and type messages, but it could also be pointing to yes and no answers on an answer board, something like that. Right. Prime time. Now from New York. And now a story about hope. When facilitated communication first came to the U.S. For decades, autism has been a dark mystery, a disorder that seems to turn children in on themselves. It was seen as a game changer for nonverbal autistic kids. Tonight, however, you are going to see something that has changed that. Call it a miracle. Call it an awakening. All these people who worked in this world were suddenly hearing you could break through and have these miraculous gains. So right around this time. Early 90s, yep, yep. Janice Boynton was working as a speech-language clinician in Maine. At the time, I had students um, K through 8. And she started working with a new student, a teenage girl named Betsy Whedon. I I felt like she she had this look that made me feel like 
there was something more going on than what she was able to express verbally. Betsy was 16 at the time. She was a nonverbal autistic girl. Betsy had a one-on-one aide who came to class with her, and the aide had started using facilitated communication, or FC. And she had been she had been trained at a workshop and was very excited about it and had pamphlets and And so Janice ended up learning facilitation from that other person. I I kind of fed off the other person's enthusiasm. It was um it looked like it was gonna be kind of easy and it seemed like you know, you just support the person's arm and you help them point to letters. It seemed like, what is there to lose? And what if it worked? Imagine what that could mean for Betsy. To think that all of a sudden we had a way to actually connect with her, that was pretty exciting. So Janice signed herself up for the next workshop. And in the meantime, got going with some simple exercises. Like, um, lay a few pictures out on the table and which one's the cat or which one is the baseball or whatever and that kind of thing. And she would start pointing to that. And then we worked towards um, maybe spelling out some of those things. And pretty soon? It seemed to be working. We started to get letters and the the movement seemed to be um, getting much easier I used a board, so calling out the names and then uh, the letters and then remembering what the words were that she was spelling and writing those down. Can you just sort of paint a picture of what it looks like when you're facilitating with Betsy? Where where are you sitting? Um, we're sitting side by side, and um, we're our, well, I used my right hand with her, um, I and and she used her... Um, her left hand, so she was sitting beside me. And then we, my hand was um, slightly underneath her, like uh, one or two fingers underneath her wrist, um, just to give light support. Janice wasn't totally convinced. Like at first, I think I was really self-conscious about am I using, am I moving the person's hand? But the the movements start becoming really fluid. So that's when it feels like Okay, these this is really working now. Like she was going along with it as you know, like we were working more as a team, maybe as a way to describe it. It wasn't anything earth shattering to start, but it seemed like Betsy's personality was coming out. Janice told Dan about the first time she asked Betsy what she wanted for lunch, and Betsy typed out P I Z Z A, and she thought she wants pizza, and you know it's it's great. Now she can give her what she wants for lunch. Like that is such a small thing, but so wonderful. Like if you're a, a girl in middle school and you've wanted pizza for months and you could never express that you wanted pizza, and now you type pizza and you get pizza. So, And that wasn't the only surprise. Another time. She guided her client's hand to the keyboard and she didn't know what was happening. And the structure of a joke was coming out on the page, a question and a punchline. And she was like, well, she didn't really know what was it was. And then she read it. And it was funny, and she laughed out loud. But then something else started happening. Janice started getting... Just maybe inklings. Uh, there were swear words that were coming out. Janice wasn't sure what to make of it. Like, well, is this just her showing her personality or what's going on? And then... Out of the blue, like, she she hit me really hard. You know, like, knock my glasses off kind of hit. And that was unexpected because we'd been going through these sessions and they were, they seemed to be okay. That's when things turned. My thinking at the time was that perhaps she was telling me something, you know, and maybe something wasn't right. And I guess in my head I was trying to figure out what that meant. There weren't specific accusations, but their fears were starting to come out on the page. I'm not I'm not sure which facilitator got the abuse allegations first, but it seemed like things weren't good at home. The struggle that we had is that we're mandatory reporters. And so like we didn't know completely like what we were dealing with and how how much stock to put into the messages, the facilitated communication messages. So the special ed teacher and I kind of sat a couple times, like, what do we do with this information? And we, it came down to what we would do with this information if it was uh, 
a typically speaking person, and we would move forward. Um, and by move forward, you mean you would report it? There was a protocol, yeah, that we would go to the the guidance counselor. The the um, special ed teacher took that to that information to the guidance counselor, and then um, um, <sighs> this is really hard. <clears throat> Is it hard because it's really emotional, or is it hard just the specificity of memory of something so long ago? No, it, it's hard because the from here on out, it's just it just really painful. It's just awful, yeah. And it it shouldn't have happened. It it and I and I hope that you include that because it shouldn't have happened. This report set a series of things in motion. DHS was called in. Yeah, there was a there was a DHS worker and a police officer. And during the questioning, Janice was the facilitator. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, of course. That I mean she was the main tool that the investigators had for getting information from Betsy about what was going on. And that's that's when the that's when the abuse allegations came out. And the accusations were I mean, were extreme They're and so graphic. It's really hard to fathom anything that happened in this story without going into really intense details. Dan's going to read to me from a printed transcript from the investigation. At one point, Betsy, pointing at this letter board with Janice holding her arm, spells out, you know, the letters S-O-M-E-T, and and then eventually she's written, something goes off. So the investigator asks, what something goes off. And she gets back to pointing at the letter board, and she spells out the words, his fuck. So the investigator says, well, what does that look like? And Betsy and Janice again start pointing at the letter board, and they write, it looks like, and then a couple of letters that don't make much sense, and then the phrase, a slimy hand and then a, a, a bit more of, of stuff that's hard to interpret, and then the words, white, I'm afraid, I am afraid, and then maybe another version of afraid, but with some of the letters missing. So the investigator asks, well, what are you afraid of? My father and my mother. She doesn't finish the word mother. We first found that transcript in the book In a Different Key, The Story of Autism by John Donvan and Carol Zucker. We then got the complete transcript from The Guardian, appointed by Maine's Department of Health and Human Services to investigate. The full transcript is utter nightmare fuel. At one point, they're asking for details about where her father kisses her, what part of her body. And the investigator keeps asking, What else? What else? What else? These graphic details keep coming. And then the investigator asks, are you afraid of Jamie? Who's Jamie? Jamie is her brother. Okay. Okay. And the answer is yes. And then as this conversation goes on, uh, Jamie too is implicated in the... um, in the molestation, and also is described as having been a fellow victim of the parents. Um, At one point, the investigator asks, where is Jamie? And uh, Betsy and Janice point out the letters to the phrase, he is fucked and he, and then again, it sort of trails off into some unclear letters. And then the investigator asks, who fucks your brother? And the answer is, my father and the bitch. Allegations were spelled out by Betsy and Janice, letter by letter. Sexual abuse allegations against everyone in her family, her brother and both her parents. Um, I mean, some of these sentences that were reported in the press at the time um, are shocking. Uh, they they were shocking to me, too, actually. I mean, like, I was looking at what was being typed on the page, and then reacting to that both as a person who'd never been through a DHS interview 
And as somebody who cared deeply about this person I was working with. After the interview. It took on a whole different dimension. I mean, as soon as this comes out, of course, you know, Betsy's not going home. I mean, this family is going to be split up. Um, This is so severe. This is so dire that now we're on just at a a totally different level of, of intervention here. Both kids have to be separated from each other and from their parents. It was a nightmare for the family and for Janice. I didn't know what to do, really. The worry that had been in the back of her mind when she started. Am I doing this right? You know, the abuse allegations happened before I went to the workshop. So Janice was asking herself, what if, without realizing it, she had done something to influence those allegations? So I went to the workshop with with the frame of mind of saying, okay, well, maybe it was me, but I'm going to go and I'm going to see about my technique and and see what they have to say. And uh, one of the things that she learns there is that there's a difference between, you know, good facilitators and bad facilitators. And the, the master trainers at this workshop are talking about how, you know, it's possible for, they, they bring up the fact that it's possible for a bad uh, facilitator to inject his or her own, you know, messages into the communication. I mean, the FC trainers are aware of this problem and and they're they're always trying to stamp it out. And Janice says that, you know, after while she's sitting in on on this session, she starts to feel sick to her stomach. And she says there's a break and she kind of steps out of the room and she starts to wonder Am I a bad facilitator? Am I one of these people who has, you know, um, substituted my own voice for my clients? But she stayed thinking, okay, I'm going to finish the training and figure out if I've been doing it wrong all this time with Betsy. I hadn't told them when I was in the workshop what was going on with me personally. So they didn't know me from anybody else that was in the training. And I passed the training. So that kind of made me feel like, okay, Maybe this is her communication. Like, it, I, I, it wasn't clear to me um, 100%, but I was leaning more towards it was the facilitated communication was correct than that I had messed this whole thing up. But the guardian in charge of the kids wanted a test. So he called Howard Shane. Howard Shane. Howard Shane is like a key figure in the story of facilitated communication. At the time... FC first started taking off in the U.S., Howard had been working with people with disabilities for decades. So Howard Shane had spent his career trying to develop assistive technologies for people who have trouble communicating. My first job out of college was working in an institution. When was this? What year was this? Uh, 1969. Howard had been appalled by the institution he'd worked in, and he made it his mission to find a better way for his students. Up until that point in history, they were pretty much neglected. There was not a lot of research in 1970 on how do we find methods of communication for people who, are, who had cerebral palsy or individuals with intellectual impairment or individuals with autism. Um, so, we, you know, we had to sort of start from the beginning. For Howard, that meant figuring out how to assess someone's abilities and then come up with ways for them to express themselves. Whatever movement someone has, someone is you know, cerebral palsy and can only move his toe or something, Howard would try to figure out a way to help that person communicate by moving his toe. And it was the beginning of communication for these students. So fast forward a decade or so to the mid-1980s. A professor from Syracuse named Doug Bicklin. Uh, Doug Bicklin is part of this sort of rethinking of the way we think about and treat people with disabilities. He starts getting really interested in FC, which Rosemary Crossley had been using since 1977 in Australia. Bicklin goes and hangs out with Rosie Crossley, and he sees how FC is opening up worlds for people. Um, Not just with cerebral palsy, that's where it started, but it sort of quickly shifts over to people with nonverbal autism. When Bicklin got back to the U.S., he wrote an article about facilitated communication. That's when it really took off here. Right around this time, Howard Shane crossed paths with Bicklin and Crossley. I was at a conference in Stockholm in 1990, and I went to listen to Rosemary Crossley and Doug Bicklin give a presentation. 
This is the first time Howard has ever heard of facilitated communication. Bicklin and Crossley are there to spread the word about this new method. And what they're saying is just like blowing Howard's mind. They're claiming that they're working with these uh, people with profound disabilities who have never communicated before, and that just by holding the people's arms and helping them to you know, steady their movements, that suddenly this is just like unlocking a latent ability that is essentially fully formed. These people are quickly able to read and write and spell out complicated sentences and ideas. Now, these are people who had no formal reading instruction. So Howard is watching this, and it's just so completely out of line with everything he's seen. He just, he turns to his friend and he says, This is the craziest thing I ever heard. The idea that if you just hold someone's hand, that they're going to start pointing to letters. Like, I've been doing this for decades. I would have noticed if someone not only could actually type on a keyboard, but could type on a keyboard and was fully literate and had all the stuff to say. Like, I would I would know that. He thought, it doesn't work that way. And especially with, for children on the autism spectrum, the idea that someone with, with autism can't uh, point to specific targets in order to spell, um, that's just crazy. I mean, the reason that they, they aren't able to, um, to, to express themselves this way isn't because they aren't able to touch the letters, it's because they can't spell. Uh, and immediately it, it, it raised the question, well, who's actually doing the communicating? But he kind of shrugged it off. I actually remember saying, but what harm can it do? So after the conference, Howard Shane went home. Quite frankly, I, I, I didn't really give it much thought. It, it wasn't something I was going to do, and I didn't anticipate I'd ever hear about it again. But only about a month later, he got a call. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Uh, yeah, I got a call from a prosecutor in, in uh, Western Massachusetts uh, telling me that someone had um, claimed that he had been sexually molested. Just like with Betsy and Janice, the allegation had been made using FC. The prosecutor wasn't sure what to make of this allegation. This was the first time this prosecutor had ever had a situation like this. It was the first Howard had heard about this kind of allegation made through FC. The prosecutor wanted to know if Howard could test the facilitator. Uh, I said, I'm not interested. He didn't want to get involved. But the prosecutor said, think about it. Because we need to know who's doing the communicating before I bring the full power of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts to crush this guy. So Howard agreed to conduct a test. The simplest way was to do what's called a message-passing test. It's really straightforward. You just send the facilitator out of the room, then you show the client something like a nickel. I brought a bag. I brought a bag. I mean, I, I, used, I used common items, but not ones that were on your immediate self. So I might, you know, there was a Band-Aid, um, a, a, a can opener, items that are common. Familiar things, but nothing you'd be likely to guess. So anyway, Howard would show the object to the client, then bring the facilitator back in and ask. 
you know, what, what, what did you see? The facilitator in Massachusetts couldn't do it. The prosecutor dropped the case. And that brings us back to Janice. When she was at the training workshop, she'd been warned that it was part of facilitator's job to fend off people who doubted her client's abilities. You're not supposed to be patronizing, and you're not supposed to, you're supposed to avoid testing because you don't want to insult this person that has this newly found language and ability to communicate. Janice didn't want to go through that and didn't want Betsy to go through it. So she's worried about it when when uh, the guardian that had been assigned to take care of the Wheaton kids proposes that they do this testing, she's wary of it. But Betsy's guardian asks Janice to consider the stakes. More than more than the the warning against testing facilitated communication was that this was really serious and affecting people. And that that in the end is what got me to that seat. So Howard arrives and Janice goes through his tests, thinking this isn't so bad. What surprised me right away was that in the workshops, they had been talking about these critics that were against facilitated communication and they don't believe in people with um, disabilities. And But that, didn't, that wasn't my experience with Howard. Um, my experience with, I mean, I, I didn't, I didn't trust him necessarily because he was the tester. But he was respectful for, to Betsy, and he was respectful to me. So um, I was I was kind of put at ease uh, as much as I could be. So um, you just kind of hope that FC is is going to prevail, and you're going to be shown that that it really is what Betsy is seeing, and not what I'm seeing. And then she just gets everything wrong. None of the messages are passed. Janice wasn't receiving information from Betsy. She was unable to name the items that I'd I'd showed her. There was no question. It was clear from that authorship test she was manipulating the finger uh, of Betsy Wheaton. And that could only mean one thing. Betsy didn't author those allegations. Do you think that she understood what the... Is there any way of knowing whether Betsy understood what the allegations had been? I, I, I seriously doubt that she did, given at least the long-standing report of her cognitive capabilities. I doubt that she understood what, you know, all of this... was what, what The reason for all of the... Either the investigations uh, into her father... Um, and she had a warm and friendly relationship with him. Um, and so, and, and I don't think she had any idea why I was there why or why she was been removed sitting from with, her home. With, with, right, or any of that. Wow. Or, or why she was, you know, subjected to this facilitation. Janice was devastated. Yeah. Somewhere in her own mind, she had invented such an awful set of facts. You know, how could I have been carrying on those conversations? And nobody really had those answers. She's left with really what, to me, must be the just the terrifying understanding that, you know, in this effort to help someone, in this effort to save someone, really, from, from sexual violence, she has actually inflicted all this harm, that she's created a crisis. And I was very aware that my actions hurt this family. But Janice wasn't alone. By 1994, there were 60 cases of sexual abuse reported through FC. And the context here is important. First, in the 1990s, there was a growing awareness of sexual abuse. In an article he wrote for the New York Times, Dan describes it as a hysteria. There's a context here of, in 1992, of almost like a nationwide fascination with trauma, repressed trauma, recovered memories, um, and child abuse. And I just, you know, it has 
occurred to me since we last talked that you know this might have played a role in in were you aware of that kind of you know national context of this idea that there was there was all this hidden child abuse going on that the memories were just emerging of this stuff i it's hard for me to say whether i was aware of it consciously but um i i i can't say that i was totally oblivious to it either and you do have to reckon with the sad reality that this population is just at tremendously higher risk in terms of rates of sexual abuse. But still, this context really doesn't explain where Janice came up with the wild details of this story. Where did it come from? Even now, Janice can't say where all that language came from. And I can't... Here's, here's what I think happens. She thinks the details of the accusations were a product of the process of investigation by FC. That's what I want to try to get across, is they're, they're asking you specific questions, like, where did this occur? What happened? How many times did anyone else know? They're asking you those specific questions. So... So the interviewer say, might say something like, did, you, did someone hurt you? So the facilitated answer is yes. The internal dialogue is someone hurt my client. You know, she just confirmed it. And then the interviewer might say, who hurt you? And then if you think of who carries out abuse, it's probably the father. And then so the facilitated answer is dad. Like, it, it's um, unfortunate, but I think it's it's not hard to to imagine what might happen if somebody was being sexually abused. And and so, and I'm not saying that that's conscious. I, I want to make that really clear. It's not, this is something I've pieced together after years of talking to other people and reading research and stuff. It's not something that I was aware of. Or And I think the facilitators that are using facilitated communication now are not necessarily aware of this it's it's on a it's on a subconscious level you just react it happens really really quickly looking back the only thing she thinks she was telling the truth about was a moment she said she didn't think betsy wanted to answer a question the rest was just a mirage i feel like i was fooled you know i i don't i i never for a moment thought she or anyone is intentionally you know trying to deceive uh, she became, she got caught up in this. That uh, I coined the term, you know, the savior effect. It was like, it was a miracle, you know. It was uh, something that, that you want to believe in. And I just kind of followed that path. I think that she felt she was she was being a positive influence. Like, it doesn't make sense to me now. It doesn't. But at the time, you're in a situation and just kind of dealing with the situation and believing that in facilitated communication and, and just... The, the whole thing was really, you know, stressful. Um, so I, it's, it's, it doesn't make sense. And, I, and, and looking back, it doesn't make sense. Janice didn't know this when she started facilitating, and she didn't know it when she failed the message-passing test. But the reality is everyone fails that test who's using it. Not everyone. I, I can't say everyone. Certainly in my experience reporting on this, when I went to the conference at Syracuse, everyone was failing the message. I went to a special workshop on for FC users on how to pass a message passing no, test. No shit. They gave a seminar on how to pass the message passing test. So in the FC world, message passing is considered the most advanced skill. Only the the most experienced FC users are at that stage. And, but and wait a minute, wait a minute. The most difficult skill is the basic premise of what's going on there, that I should be able to interpret what you're saying about something. I mean, it doesn't make any Ellen, sense I don't to me know. why that's I the don't. I wish I could help you. It didn't make sense to me either. <laughs> and it was something that was so bizarre and damning in its strangeness. If message passing was some high art and not the fundamental premise of the whole thing, then why did anyone think FC worked in the first place? Well, there was a famous case of a test and a message successfully passed 
by a master practitioner, the master. And it's a story about none other than Rosemary Crossley, the inventor of facilitated communication. So Rosemary Crossley uh, is an Australian woman. Okay who um, I think had some training as a computer programmer and as a special educator. And she ended up at an institution for children with disabilities. And she got put in charge of a group that I think she called the beanbaggers because they were kids who had cerebral palsy that they weren't able to sit in a regular chair. They needed to sit in beanbag chairs. And this is like the 80s, the late 70s? This is the 70s. Okay. Um, and as beanbaggers, she doesn't intend it in a derogatory sense no. to those people. She intends it as maybe a derogatory sense to the institution, like that's not an appropriate... I don't, I don't even have the... I never asked her about that, but I don't... Just from you reading... You interviewed her. I've, yeah, I've spoken to her a number of times. What's she like? She is... Uh, I would say very charming. She has a good sense of humor. And she goes by Rosie. And one of the kids Rosie meets at this institution is a girl named Annie. I mean, if you read, so she she later wrote a book called Annie's Coming Out. Um, which was made into a movie. <laughs> which was made into a movie in Australia. Hello, Annie. I'm going to see if I can make you a bit more comfortable. So Anne McDonald was one of these beanbagger kids. And when Rosie met her, she couldn't talk. Some people can't talk because they simply can't form the words, right? But like otherwise, they could think the words. Um, and then other people with cerebral palsy may have some kind of cognitive impairment that where they just never acquire language. So right. it's hard to know. Well, sometimes it's like she's taking in everything I'm saying. Rosemary Crossley believed... I think with reason that there might have been children there who were being treated as though they had mental and physical disabilities, but really they just they just couldn't communicate what they were thinking. So Rosie has this eureka moment. What if she gave these kids physical support? Maybe they could get their thoughts across. She herself wanted to be like supportive furniture for them, like an occupational health intervention. And FC was born. That's the girl. And I mean, it's incredible. Like, the rate of learning is so fast. You read the book, you read Annie's Coming Out, and you have to pause every once in a while to just check the dates and be like, wait, 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 wait. This is, like, three months or whatever into working with Rosie, and now she's doing, like, trigonometry and, and differential equations or whatever. It's like the uh, the the rate... She's a genius. She's a genius, although I think the way... Uh, Crossly interprets it. Um, look at me distancing myself from her now, and she was Rosie a second was, ago. <laughs> the way Rosie interprets it is um, that if you're locked in, if you have you know this fully formed intellect, and no one is talking to you, and you have no way to talk, no one is treating you like you have something to say, and you have no means to um, to contradict everyone's assumption about you. That that's just sort of this pressure builds up inside. And then as soon as there's like a crack in the door from that prison cell that you've been locked in, you just want to burst out and say everything that can be said and learn everything that can be learned. And your mind is just ready for that. Rosie is convinced that whatever doubts anyone else has, she believes in Annie. So, but but that starts to this... Um, battle emerges between Rosie and the institution because Rosie wants to get Annie out. And there were legal disputes over that. And, and you know, the, Annie and Rosie ended up in court. And then finally, there's a test run where uh, whatever barrister decides, okay, Rosie has to leave the room. And then he tells Annie two words. And those words are string and quince. And then Rosie comes back in the room, and then he says, now, Annie, I want you to spell out, using facilitated communication, those words. And she spelled out string and quit. And the barrister said, okay. Close enough. And the persuasive evidence that the applicant is making intelligent communication causes me to feel that the applicant has expressed... I don't see how you possibly could have even gotten in the ballpark unless there is something to this. So that was the decision 
which kind of was was like the the victory and it's the culmination of that book and FC sort of takes off from there. So Dan says, while there wasn't a ton of skepticism about Rosie and Annie at the outset, once it started being challenged by people like Howard Shane in the 1990s, there's this shift. The backlash begins. You know, there's there's so many examples of FC not actually producing authentic communication. Once that comes out, I think then you start to look, well, where did this come from? Well, it came from... Um, Rosie Crossley in Australia. Well, what's the famous example? The famous example is Annie. Well, that one is real, right? Because we know that because of the movie and the book. And then people start to say, well, what if even that was wrong? And so it's like once you get into that mindset, you know, I all, all as I researched and reported on this, like I kept thinking of FC like one of those, you know, ambiguous images that flips back and forth, like between a rabbit and a duck. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, sure. And I think once you once you start to go, oh, wait, 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 wait. It's the facilitator who's providing the messages and the client isn't really doing anything necessarily. Once you once you get once, that once you see the duck. Yeah, once you see the duck, then you look around and all of the examples that have come before, you're just like duck 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 and it's really hard to see it any other way. And so so the Annie case is, is tricky because you're like, if everything else is a duck, then why wouldn't Annie be a duck? And then you start to puzzle over, like, well, how did this string and quince thing happen? Which I think is still a mystery. I mean, I, I have no idea what happened in that room, but, you know, there I've talked to people who are extremely skeptical of that whole story. And then I've talked to people who... I don't. I just. I wouldn't say that I'm. I know one way or another. I'm just. There's doubt in my mind. I guess. And that's kind of how we left Janice. When um, Howard Shane gives her the results of the test, I mean, she's she's scared. She's confused. How could this have happened? And she says that soon after that, she began to rationalize it away. You know, maybe the testing was flawed in some way, or Howard was out to. You know undermine the situation somehow or but that that really didn't that rationalization fades it, it didn't hold water over time but that you know I did I did kind of go through that um after going over it again and again trying to figure out where she went wrong she starts to have this realization I'm, I'm not saying this is what happened but this is how I can piece it together that makes sense to me Janice now has this theory what I think happens is that the facilitator starts developing an idealized version in their head of the person that they're working with. And that's who they, like uh, like an author might um, create a character um, for a fictional piece of writing. And um, and I don't, I'm not saying that you know that this is happening or that, uh, you know, these are just, this is just me speculating after so many years of thinking about facilitated communication. But that's what I think happens. I think you develop this internal relationship and you attribute it to the person you're working with, but it's really, it really has to do with the facilitator and not, and, and very, very little to do with the, with the person being facilitated. So, I can walk down the street, and I can. My dad died um, quite a few years ago, but I can still walk down the street and laugh at something that he would have thought was funny. Um, you know, so I think it's possible to to share an internal joke. But this is where facilitated get communication, the psychology, gets really, um, I think, really confusing. But I, I think there's a, a relationship that over time develops between the facilitator and, a, and, a, and an idealized version of that person you're working with. And you want to be able to share a joke with that person or you want to be able to, to um, have a, a conversation, uh, you know, a, a quote-unquote more, more normal uh, um, communication with the person than... Um, that then that person may be able to deal with in real life, but I don't. I I think there's a there's a imagined element of facilitated communication that's difficult to describe. Looking back, Janice thinks maybe that internal dialogue is the key to understanding why it was so hard to let go. 
for me to accept that the allegations were not true and based on me as a as a facilitator then I also had to accept somehow that the good stuff was also not true it's equal you know it doesn't the the content of a facilitated message does not matter it doesn't matter whether you're saying the sky is blue or if you're you know if something bad is being reported it's exactly the same thing it's the same process It took years and a tremendous amount of mental flexibility to realize that she had been deceiving herself. And that was probably both the best and the worst thing that happened to me was to go through that testing. And that makes Janice unique. Entirely unique. I have not met another facilitator who flipped like that, who changed her mind and said, no, I was totally wrong. I, this is the only case where I found that. So why do you think that is? Why do you, why do you think it's so hard or so uncommon? I think it's because the, um, the stakes are so high uh, just in every possible way. I mean, forget the, the, you don't need to have the sexual abuse allegations for the stakes to be high. The stakes are fundamentally just extreme in the sense that what you have concluded is that this person has been locked in, imprisoned in silence, treated as though they have nothing to say. And then you have come along and helped that person uh, free himself or herself and suddenly become an expressive human being. I mean, in a way, like, that is a a far more momentous thing even than, you know, someone's potential victimization. I mean, th- that those are the stakes in every single case of someone using FC. Once you have helped someone free themselves from this prison... To then turn around and say, nope, sorry, that was all me. You know, in the same way you, like, opened up that prison door, you're now slamming it shut again. Um, I mean, the, the personal cost um, is enormous. Um, do you think there's a value to facilitated communication still, even yet, even understanding the limitations and dangers of it. Well, I think Howard Shane was, you know, he said, what harm could it do? And then uh, the significance of that story for him is that, again, a week later, he's hearing about these terrible cases. Um, There are still cases like that that emerge from time to time. So those stories continue. That's real harm. But, I mean, those are the very unusual cases. And in the course of my reporting, I met lots of families that use facilitation, and it's not clear what the harm is, and the benefit is very clear. I mean, these are, I remember talking to, when I went to Syracuse for the facilitate the FC conference, I talked to a couple and their son, who was a typer, and a poet typed out poetry. And I asked the mother, what, you know, does it bother you that there's these researchers who say, this stuff is, is, you know, fake, it's inauthentic, these aren't real messages. And she says, she said something like, um, you know, with all the science about it, my feeling is the researchers are going to figure it out at some point, but I don't have time to wait for that. In the meantime, I want to talk to my son. And that was the end of the story for her. You know, it didn't even matter. To, like, I noticed that when he was typing, his eyes were looking off in other directions. And I thought, well, I wonder, you know, am I going to decide, am I skeptical or not skeptical of this particular case? Because it's every, everyone is different. You know, even if, if I assumed this is not real, this kid is, you know, it's just these poems are really written by the dad or whatever. Like, the parents were so, the parents were engaged in communicating with their son constantly. And, you know, the question of like, well, how much of the messages are real and how much, like, it just, it complicates everything when you see how valuable it is, at least in certain axes. I believe the scientific literature that suggests that it's inauthentic either all the time or virtually all the time. We can talk, I mean, I have seen people type with help who can also type independently. Yeah, yeah. So 
I recognize that there are there are situations where there are there there's sort of a gray area for some people. Yeah. But I think as a as a tool, it is so unreliable as to be like very dangerous. Dan, so so what what was the effect for you of of reporting on FC? How how did reporting on FC affect you? Uh, I mean, in, in some ways, it like took over my life for several years as I was reporting the story. It, um, Did it mess with you at all? Yeah, it totally messed with me just in, like, I couldn't get free of the sense that FC is just this very, very extreme case of communication more broadly, that all communication is facilitated in some way. It just made, you know... It's just like this exaggerated or super zoomed-in version of how a lot of conversations feel, where you're talking to someone. As a journalist, like, you know, when I'm not working on this story, I'm interviewing other people, trying to understand their story, what they're trying to say about themselves or about the world. And... You know, it's I to some extent I'm sitting there on the phone or in front of the person and I'm I'm trying to understand what are they getting at? What am I am I you know, am I getting it into my notes properly? They're all the Did you start to question like how much is me and how much is this other person in every conversation you were having? Yeah. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> I mean what that's that's the that's the um uh that is the horror of FC to the idea that like you 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 you're Janice Poynton and and one day you just realize that it's all been you as i was reporting on it it was uh you know people kept wanting to know what side i was on i mean dan was trying to keep his balance on a very tricky path imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time that's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Everyone is lined up on one side or another. There's, you know, there's the debunkers and the scientific literature, and that's just saying this is all BS. And then there's the practitioners who are so isolated and saying, you know, they're they're entrenched and like, no, it's it's valid. We have to, you know. And I tried to, this all feels very like pre-2016. I tried to be living in that middle ground of like, I don't need to come down on one side or another. But, um, but today. Feels like you always have to come down now on everything. So... In some ways, he's still trying to hold two truths in his mind, the duck and the rabbit. I don't know. <laughs> because I real, I also, you know, if I just think about the things I've written about FC, um, they have become more definitive and, um, you know, calling it out as a duck over time. Like the first piece I wrote about this, I really tried to not quite play it down the middle, but just sort of not give my opinion on the validity. I just kind of laid out the facts as I understood them. And I've gotten, as I've written about it in subsequent pieces, I've I've sort of gotten more um, overtly critical, kind of definitive about how I think that FC, again, is... I never say that it, it, it doesn't work. It's a total fraud. But I say that it, like, if it works, it's very rare. Even knowing all the science against FC, 
you know, I, I want to hold in my mind and in my heart, like the reasons why people believe in FC and, and like the bigger context, it, the, the touching is so tender and there's still a very real connection going on there. I, I don't, it's just, it's really hard to describe without actually, you know, holding your hand and doing it. But Dan realized that doubting that connection, it wasn't easy to do in the moment. It doesn't take a special kind of person to, you know, quote unquote, be taken in by this. Right. I think it is the natural, it is it is one's natural inclination. Trying to, you know, bridge that gap, trying to understand what someone is trying to say. That creates a real feeling of intimacy. I really felt close that I was getting close to Betsy. I liked her. I think she, um, I don't know what she felt about me, but she, we sat in lots of FC sessions together and she tolerated being close to me. So I think in some, I'd like to think on some level, she also liked me. That feeling of closeness, it didn't just end for Janice. It's part of why she still feels so deeply terrible about what happened. Back in 1994, a couple years after Betsy and her brother were reunited with their parents, after Janice had recanted and asked her school to stop using FC, she met Betsy's parents for the first time. I went to their home and apologized to them in person, and that... <clears throat> Sorry. It still gets to me. Um, they were so gracious. You know, I don't know what I would have done in that situation, but I think because of their their graciousness and humanity, it makes me like motivated to learn about this and to speak about it. It's it's not. I mean, I, I would like people to understand my side of it, too. But they're, they're my motivation. Janice's way of moving forward has been to turn to the facts, to science, and to be as honest as she can about her own self-deception. Back when I was involved with it, you could have said, I could have said, oh, yep, I did it wrong. I was the only one that did this wrong. But I can't, I can't say that now because there's so many people who have been tested in different, not just, not just when it's serious like mine, but just to find out whether this is true or not. In case after case after case, it's always the facilitator. So I cannot, I cannot ignore it, and I can't. As much as I, in some ways, didn't even want to do this interview, thinking it had that word has to get out. Like how many people have to get hurt before people start looking at the evidence? I'm, I, I'd like to know the answer to that. For me, it turned me around. You know, it's like somebody asked me that point blank that I trusted. I thought, well, well, that kind of takes you back a couple steps. <laughs> you know, like how many people do have to get hurt? I better look into this and I better find out. I didn't know before, but I better find out now. I know the difference. So the missing character in the story is, is, is Betsy Whedon. What happened to her? Yeah. So, Alex, the, um, we made many attempts to reach out to Betsy's family. Hmm. And, uh, and they, they didn't respond to any of our calls. There's some additional context here that we've been wrestling with. Hmm. And I, I, I keep coming back to 
In 2001, uh, Betsy's brother murdered his wife and committed suicide. And uh, and so it's understandable that the family might not want to participate. Yeah. Um, I think we we initially did not think that that was information that we should include in this story, that it felt like including it laid too much responsibility um, for that additional tragedy with Janice. On FC. Yeah, but I do keep, it keeps coming back to my mind, and I do think that it informs the emotion that we hear from her. Mm. And, um, you know, it just speaks to a level of trauma that the family, the whole family experienced as a result of FC. And so it it is still staggering to me that still FC is taught and that people are still practicing it today when it has caused so much harm. I mean, it just makes me wonder. It sort of testifies to the idea of the power of belief. Like you, you believe so much in something that you just have a hard time letting it go. Yeah, that's um, right. And that um, so much so that you're willing to deceive yourself um, over, you know, in the case of FC, how effective it might be. But, you know, I've, I've done other stories, too. You know, most recently is Elizabeth Holmes. You know, you can debate whether she was running a scam, but to some extent, I think she was in the business of deceiving herself about how effective her machine was because she needed to believe it. She had convinced herself of the glory of her mission. And so... Um, that self-deception ran really deep, even when she was presented with the evidence of her own perfidy. Um, she doubled down. Yeah. I mean, she didn't back down. She doubled down, and by all accounts, she's still in that place today where she did nothing wrong. Hmm. Um, yeah, it's funny. It's it's hard to figure out where that line is with ambitious people and entrepreneurs and, and Yeah, because if, if you don't deceive yourself about what is possible, maybe you don't you know, reach high enough in order to break a barrier. Same thing, I think, with athletes, too. At times, you have to believe that, you know, you're down by nine runs in the bottom of the ninth inning. You have to believe it's possible, and indeed, sometimes it is. Um, And that's how you transcend limits, and that's why we love sports. So if you don't deceive yourself to some extent, uh, you can't always be a realist. Then you don't dream. Um, But... You know, uh, so maybe that's why. I mean, you know, I I wondered whether or not this whole idea of self-deception um, in writ small or writ large is is a part of who we are as human beings. Right. Whether it's how we're hardwired. When I spoke to philosopher David Livingston Smith, he pointed out that self-deception is a powerful tool, one our brains make use of because it can be a huge advantage. If you believe your own lies, if you believe the story that you're wanting others to accept, you're going to give a much more powerful pitch. If you can convince yourself that what you are trying to put across is the truth. If you can really get behind it, you can be in bad faith, in good faith, as it were, and you're just going to be much better at it. So maybe the trick to harnessing this power, or at least not getting blindsided by it, is to admit that deception is a fundamental part of who we are. To tell people that they ought not to deceive is is wrong, right? Because you're asking them to do the impossible. Right. There's you know there's a slogan in philosophy, uh, ought implies can. Mm-hmm. That if someone ought to do something, it must be the case that they can do it. Right. And uh, people can't. So, I mean, if you're interested, so here's what we can do. We can cut down on surplus deception. But the first step to doing that is to recognize the uh, 
both the inevitability and the social necessity of deception, to recognize it as just an intrinsic part of human life. Next up on Lies We Tell, we look to the law to draw the line. To this day, I don't, I don't know whether Mark killed Julie, and I don't know whether Julie killed herself, because I could see it going either way. This case is complicated on every single level. It was like a, a like a, a fifteen hundred piece jigsaw puzzle, where you didn't see the picture on the cover. Um, in a murder case, jurors may see this as some kind of murder mystery where they get to come in and solve the crime, but that's not what a trial really is. One woman is dead, and the murder trial shakes our confidence in the very concept of truth. Join us for the final episode of this season of Lies We Tell. From Luminary Media and Jigsaw Productions, Lies We Tell is produced in association with Story Mechanics. Our producers are Claire Sloan Vance, Brenna Farrell, associate producers Sophie Behrman and Tessa Kramer. We had help this episode from Dan Engler and Camille Peterson. Our interns are Silver Lifton and Ali Einberg. Our executive producers are Ellen Horn, Stacy Offman, Richard Perello, Joey Mara, and John Schmidt. Original score and mixing by Story Mechanics. Our composer is Darren Gray. Our sound engineers are Charles Michelet and Mike Cruz. Special thanks to Beth Schneebalk, Jamie Lines, Matt Sachs, and Kenzie Wilbur. I'm Alex Gibney, and this is Lies We Tell.